Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is John Cochran, the Myron S. Scholes Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. John, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. John, I want to start with uh, a little bit of history, and I want to get your take on how the financial system got into the mess it got into and how it spilled into the real sector of the economy. So let's start with Wall Street. Uh, what do you think went wrong? What are your highlights or maybe lowlights for the mistakes that were made uh, publicly and privately to get us to where we are? Okay. Um, well, well, two things. I, I do think this is often um, characterized as, oh, free markets failed. We, we don't have anything like a free financial market. We have a very regulated market uh, with the government trying very hard to have people um, invest in houses rather than stocks and bonds. And, and that... I think a lot of those regulations turned out to have downsides. But I do think, um, if I'm going to place blame somewhere, it's on people who invested their money without reading the fine print, uh, or even the fine print, without even thinking twice about it. Um, when someone comes and says, I have a gold mine here, you're going to earn lots more money without taking risk, you really, uh, it's up to you to look at that a little harder than a lot of people were looking at that. And, um, they bought all sorts of horrible stuff and therefore encouraged um, all sorts of borrowing that shouldn't have happened, and that stuff turned out to be worthless. I mean, that's the fundamental problem. Let's go a little deeper into it. In, in particular, the thing that troubles me, both uh, ideologically and intellectually, is how so many people made so many mistakes. The normal feedback loops uh, seem to have broken down. Some of those were broken by government intervention, but some of them just didn't work the way they normally do. I mean, there are a lot of areas where government intervenes, and the private sector kind of, I think of it like a rock in a river that just kind of swirls around it and avoids it as best as it can. But in this case, uh, things went uh, not just badly, but uh, disastrously. What do you think was the reason that so many people didn't look at the fine print. Uh, if you look at the fine print, usually, if you don't, usually there's a risk you lose your money, and a lot of people did. Why did so many make so many bad decisions? Yeah, well, I'm, um, first, I'm, I'm all for people being able to make stupid decisions, <laughs> and uh, Me for too. The, but then for the government not bailing them out after you know. the fact. That's the only way we learn to make better decisions. And there's a big call now for, oh, we need regulation, regulation, with with kind of uh, in mind that regulation is magically going to let you keep on earning great returns and not have to do any work in order to do it or, or plant some fairy on everyone's shoulder who's going to keep them from doing something stupid in the future. And that, they, the claim of free markets was never that they were perfect, just that uh, the alternative of the government running things was worse. Uh, but let's get uh, let's get back to your question. So what went wrong? Um, so there's a lot of blame going around, but as I look hard at each link in the chain, it's hard to blame people other than the, the people who were carelessly uh, putting their money at risk. For example, um, 
uh, if somebody offers you, here's a, um, you don't have a job, you don't have a down payment, here's a mortgage. If the value of the house goes up, you get to keep the house. If it goes down, uh, we take it back. That's kind of a one-way bet. Uh, it's kind of sensible if someone offers you a lottery ticket to take it. And so how about the mortgage issuer? Well, they're all being, now fraud, I don't, I don't like fraud, but, um, you know, within the lines of legality, um, is it terrible that they issued uh, mortgages to people who didn't have much chance of paying them back? Well, the people who were buying those mortgages weren't looking hard at it. Um, so if the market wants to buy that stuff, it's kind of hard to blame people for selling exactly what their clients want. And if you, um, you know, if you walked into uh, a lot of uh, pension funds, endowments, so forth, and said, uh, here's an honest proposition, it has some risks, you'd get kicked out. And if you say, here's a fun mortgage pool of all sorts of fancy stuff, and we promise you all sorts of return without risk, they take it without looking twice. So it's well, kind part of hard of the... to blame the intermediaries there either. Yeah, I don't blame the intermediaries. I think the, the real the question for me, I think there's, there's a bunch of questions, but let, let's start with this one. Uh, a lot of folks bought these bundles of mortgages on the presumption that they were quite safe because they were AAA rated. And then some people, as a result, blame the credit agencies for AAA rating something that was not truly AAA. But the fact is, is that these were very clever instruments. It's, it wasn't just stupid, greedy people buying junk that they thought was great. There was a very clever aspect, innovative, creative, brilliant aspect to these securities that it appeared insulated the highest tranches from risk, that the losses would be absorbed by the early, uh, the most risky parts, and that those pension funds and others would be safe. But they were wrong. Were they? Yeah. Why were they wrong? Well, um, let's, let's go back to two parts of it. And, and first of all, um, why this is a great idea in principle. Um, so the, the mortgage-backed security, I hope, will will come back. It, it was, as you mentioned, um, a wonderful idea because w- the result is that um, we share risks around the world. When, when a bunch of mortgages in Kansas turned sour in the 1930s, that meant that a bank in Kansas would go under and, and devastate the local economy. Now a bunch of mortgages in Kansas go sour and a hedge fund in Germany takes the losses. That's That's wonderful. That's just how... Um, you know, free markets are supposed to work and spread things around. Well, and the hedge, hedge funds in Germany should have mortgages in other places maybe that aren't doing badly, so they would be okay. They just take a, a little hit, exactly. a, a part so, of a larger portfolio. So this is a, um, a, a device that lets us do um, – it, it lets the world look more like the beauty of our of our free market model where where risks are spread around the world. Now, version 1.0 of it had some – problems in it, as we noticed. Part of this is the role of credit agencies, and and lots of people are saying, oh, it was uh, AAA rated, Um, how could that possibly have happened? But again, um, you know, what does a rating mean? Um, If your view of the world is some agency can come in and say, this is risk-free, and therefore you have the right to earn 5% more return over treasuries and not take any risk... You know, you're asking some agency to come give you a gold mine. That's not the way the world works. If this thing is paying 5% extra interest, rating or no rating, that means there's some risk in here, and it's your job to look. So what what can we ever expect of a rating agency? Uh, you know, what we should expect is that they will read some of the fine print and make sure that some of the I's are 
dotted and T's are crossed. But if we expect that of a raging agency, here they will tell you how you can earn more interest without bearing any risk. You're asking for the tooth fairy, not for a rating agency. Yeah, I don't, and I don't blame the ratings agency. I just brought it up because I think it's interesting how what a nice scapegoat they make. I think most people, and 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 one of the criticisms that people make of them is that they were being paid by the uh, by the issuers of the security. Well, most people know that when a person's being paid to rate something, it's probably not the most objective rating in the world. So I assume, as you say, I think a lot of stupid people, greedy people, whatever, greedy and stupid, which is a large uh, part of our our world, obviously, it's part of life, there were greedy and stupid and careless and imprudent people who bought these things without thinking there was was no risk because it was AAA. But I think most people understood that AAA is got to be taken with a grain of salt. And so as a result, I don't think that's the right the only place to look. Yeah. Now, there is the, the dark side of this is, so um, AAA, you know, the, the rating agencies are um, enshrined into regulation. I'd like to see a lot more competition in rating agencies. That would help a lot. And some of this structure um, and some of the problems we got into are were devised as ways of getting around silly regulations as opposed to devised as ways to um, share risk around the world uh, optimally, so give me an example. Well, for example, so the, the rating question. There's a lot of um, institutions that are regulated that they can only hold AAA securities. Now, the way you get a safe portfolio is you take a diversified portfolio of things that aren't safe, and you make them safe. So it doesn't help to just hold AAA securities. Each one, what you want is a portfolio that's safe. So it's kind of silly to regulate to say each security needs to be AAA as opposed to saying the whole portfolio needs to have a certain risk characteristic. On the surface, that would seem to be even better. Yes. That each would be one better. is AAA. It's not the whole portfolio that's safe. So some of what this uh, what this uh, stuff was doing was forming the portfolio for you and then branding the whole thing AAA. It was finding a way of getting around this regulation that things had to be AAA. So people had an incentive then to get stuff branded AAA for regulatory reasons, even when they didn't want to have AAA. This is in some sense how how junk debt started in the 1980s. Uh, Banks weren't allowed to hold stock, so people invented a kind of thing that could be called debt for regulatory purposes, but was really stock. And you can see where that blew up. So some of what we're doing here is, um, you know, a regulation says you must hold AAA stuff. There's no economic reason to want to hold AAA stuff. Therefore, there's an incentive to call stuff AAA that really isn't. Well, uh, the problem I would say there is in the regulation, not in the AAA. The other surprise, though, is that, that banks were holding back um, these these equity tranches. So the way these securities work, in case your listeners aren't totally up on the well, <laughs> we, finance. I'm not, although we've had a couple podcasts on them. It's always good to hear it again. Go for so it. We take a bunch of mortgages and we put them in a pool, and then we have an agreement that when they start losing money, what we call is the equity tranche is the first one to lose, and therefore you can lose, say, 10 cents on the dollar before the safer parts of it start to lose any money. Uh, the interesting things with the, was that the banks seem to have kept many more of those riskiest parts than anybody thought. So what the banks ended up doing was essentially writing insurance as opposed to borrowing and lending. 
And again, some of that is... Explain that. What do you mean writing insurance instead of borrowing and lending? Yeah, so if what you do is you hold this first tranche, this toxic or equity tranche... Riskier, highly, much riskier. Yeah, usually the way a bank works is they they borrow money from depositors and they lend it out to people um, who have houses. (laughs) Or small businesses or other... Now what we're doing is is with the mortgage-backed security, the bank... Um, the mortgage is actually held by somebody else. All that's left with the bank is this little bit that is the first one to lose any money. So what they're essentially doing, it's as if they took the owners of the mortgages and said, look, we'll write you an insurance contract that you won't lose money on these mortgages. Now, that's treated in a regulatory when you way. Say, you say the insurance contract, they're writing it to the other holders of the of the mortgage-backed security. That's you mean. right. They're right. saying to the people who bought the the risk, the less risky part, uh, we'll take the risk, we'll get a higher return, but we'll make sure that you don't absorb a bigger risk than you want, and that's the insurance you're talking about. That's exact. That's okay. right. So, um, keeping that last tranche is like writing insurance, and banks do a lot of explicit writing insurance. So we discovered that the hard way. There were these special purpose vehicles that blew up uh, last fall, and it turned out, oh, the banks had all written credit guarantees. Well, they're, they're just explicitly writing insurance. They're saying, we guarantee this thing won't blow up, and if it does, we'll take it back. Now, normally, when banks borrow and lend, they're taking the risk of something going wrong, but they're also doing the borrowing and lending. But that's treated in a regulatory way uh, much more harshly than writing insurance. So the banks just did the writing insurance part really as a way to get around a lot of bank regulation. It's interesting. So the when you say banks, obviously there are many, many different financial institutions playing in this market. We have uh, hedge funds that are standalone. We have hedge funds that are within investment banks such as Bear Stearns or Lehman, they had hedge fund divisions. We have the regular sort of brick-and-mortar FDIC guaranteed deposit banks. So when you say banks held the equity portions, which of those three classes are you talking about? All three? or? Yeah, that's a good the, – um, the big commercial banks that are in trouble now and receiving billions of dollars of your and my money uh, turned out to be the ones that um, – had a lot more mortgage risk than anybody thought. What we thought by this great system of mortgage-backed securities was that the banks would be in the business of originating and servicing. They would make a loan, find people who had you know, houses and wanted to get a loan, and then they would service it. They would uh, be in the business of collecting the checks, but then they would sell the risk off by selling these pools of mortgages as mortgage-backed securities. Well, it turned out that uh, by the credit guarantees and the tranching system, the banks had managed to keep all the risks, well, not all, but had keep, kept a lot more risk than anybody thought um, while, uh, while, putting, while selling all these mortgages. Uh, there's that's one other... why the banks are in much more trouble now than anybody thought they would be. And by banks, again, you, you do mean traditional FDIC well, sort of banks, I not mean, just no, the hedge I mean funds. I big New York commercial banks. City. The, Typical sort of neighborhood bank is doing fine uh, because the typical neighborhood bank um, um, does some origination, doesn't keep, they get rid of the whole thing if they're going to sell the mortgage off or they just keep the mortgage on the books and and keep servicing it. So uh, many, many local traditional banks are are doing fine. They didn't 
they didn't get involved with this mess at all. So you're talking actually about banks that did some of the origination, packaged these things together, and kept the, some of the riskier pieces for themselves. Yeah. I thought you meant that they were in the market holding different securities, which I'm sure they did also. Um, and what about the so-called subprime originators, people like Countrywide? Were they also holding – I mean, they're, they're in some dimension, they were a pure intermediary that was just linking together – People who liked the idea of buying a house with no money down and people who thought they could find a way to lend them that money without having any uh, risk because, say, prices were rising. But what did Countrywide itself have at risk in this market? They weren't just a middleman. Yeah, Countrywide was keeping some of the risks, um, and I don't, I haven't looked at their particular books, so I'm not sure. Yeah, but, but I mean, people like them. Certainly what brought them, one of the things that brought them down was that they were keeping some of the, at least some of the uh, bad parts of the mortgages uh, on there. And they were also really stretching this business. Uh, I mean, their their standards were, uh, I mean, in some cases, actually fraudulent. Uh, and I'm, I'm surprised that people were buying mortgage-backed securities that they issued. Well, a lot of times... Some of these organizations were these originators were were financing more than one hundred percent of the house. They were covering some of the closing costs, and of course, when prices are rising, uh, that's a feasible strategy, uh, at least on paper. Uh, when they stop rising or start falling, it's disastrous, and that's that is part of the problem. But let's let's get. Well, that is the risk. I mean, so you only earn extra return in this life for taking on some form of systematic risk. So if you bought a pool of mortgage-backed securities, the risk you were taking, you were taking a bet on house prices. And when house prices went down, you're going to lose money. So let's turn to that question, which is still one that uh, I have not, I don't fully understand. And we've, we've talked about a little bit in this, in previous podcasts, but it, it is um, at the heart of the confusion for me, and I suspect for some of our listeners, is the idea of deleveraging. So what happens, one of the reasons this is a puzzle for the outsider uh, is that you know, when things go bad, a sector of the economy goes bad, people invested it, and it, they lose money. And that's you know, the way I like to think of it is uh, sometimes if you make, take on too much risk, you buy stuff that turned out not to be such a good investment, you have a bad quarter. Uh, if you do a really bad job, you have a bad year. It's pretty impressive that so many of these folks didn't just have a bad quarter or bad year. They're done. They're bankrupt. They're out of business. So why is it that such a small part of the world capital market, that is investment in housing, why did it have such a destructive effect on so many institutions? Uh, why is it that uh, – even though it was a horrible set of losses within that one little sector, why didn't that just mean that Bear Stearns or others, uh, Merrill Lynch, just yeah, they had a bad quarter. They invested in some stuff that went down. Why did it destroy these these companies? Well, uh, these, especially uh, Bear Stearns, uh, Lehman, Merrill Lynch, these are companies that had borrowed a lot of money. So, you know, if 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 you if you have not very little equity, stock outstanding, and you have borrowed a lot of money in order to make your investments, if you make a little bit of loss, then the whole company can go bankrupt because you can't pay your debts. So it's it's a combination of taking very risky uh, positions in, in the stuff you're betting on and borrowing money in order to bet. Um, you know, you and I can go to Las Vegas 
and and uh, you know gamble a hundred dollars and and walk away, and if we lose a hundred dollars, we're poor. But if if you have borrowed, every, if all you have in the world is fifty dollars and you borrow ten thousand, then you know your first hundred, you're not going to be able to pay back your loans, and then you're bankrupt. Which leads us to the next question, of course, which is. Uh, why did people lend these institutions money on, on an ongoing basis? Right there was a, the way I understand it, there's a there was a very active, very very short term market to help these institutions keep their balance sheets healthy. And once people said, you know, I'm not so sure they can pay it back, it was over. Is that correct? That is that is correct. The astounding thing is that now we're away from banks here. These are. These things were um, the invest the investment banks are not you know regulated banks they were able to do what they wanted, but they were um, borrowing not just borrowing a lot of money but they were borrowing it overnight, so every day they had to go in and borrow new money to pay off the old money, uh, and then keep the whole operation afloat. Now why is that? Um, people who were lending money to them, uh, everybody wants the illusion of I'm not taking risk because I can sell on the way down. And that's one of the many great fallacies of finance. Uh, no, Explain. You can't you can't put in a stop loss order and stop and and not have risk. You can't plan to sell on the way down and and therefore not have risks. So what basically the what, what the people lending money to them thought was, well, I'm only lending money overnight, so I can just refuse to renew the loan if they get any sort of trouble. Well, that's a recipe for disaster because that's exactly what happened. Is uh, that that leads to a run. If you smell that everybody else thinks they're going to be in trouble, then you don't lend to them overnight, and then now you have a crisis. They wake up, and they can't borrow new money, and that's exactly what happened to Bear Stearns. And now we're at a really good point in the story, because when I get to this point in the story, here's my next conclusion, which turns out to be wrong, but I'd like to hear where my mistake is. You'd say, okay, so these guys made a mistake, as you said at the beginning of our conversation. We never said capitalism or freedom or risk or finance was perfect. Uh, sometimes people either out of zeal or the madness of crowds or a lack of foresight or a flawed risk analysis model, they take on too much risk and the world comes and bites them and they're done. That happens. You make a mistake. You make a set of mistakes. You're not alone. So normally that would just again be, well, okay, so this part of the financial world made a set of bets that turned out to be much more risky than they appeared, they're done. But the spillover effects, the cascade, uh, is quite impressive. A whole bunch of what is sometimes called the shadow banking system, a whole bunch of financial markets, the overnight, the overnight market, um, uh, the credit default swap market, a, a whole bunch of other stuff suddenly stopped almost entirely is that is that correct and if so why did that happen yeah no you've got a i think what you've put your finger on is is certainly where i think the central problem is right now i i don't think the banks are actually that much of a problem they're trundling along and they're kind of run by the government at this point um but we a lot of the credit markets are not working and in many cases, as you look at each one in detail, you can see uh, sort of the version 1.0 of the software had a bug in it, mm -hmm. and uh, that caused it to blow up. Um, from a regulatory perspective, it's pretty clear to me that there's a version you know, 2.0 that would solve that bug, but you can see it blowing up. Let me give you a, a precise example so we have something to talk about. 
Um, one thing that happened was municipal bond markets went nuts. And even now, municipal bonds are tax-free, so usually they pay a lower interest rate than treasuries. Right now, they're paying uh, 4 5 and 6% above treasuries. So you get not only do you get you know, 6 to 8% interest, it's tax-free relative to a treasury. That's just astounding. And many, tells you people are very afraid they're going to default. People, well, some of it's default, but if um, the interest rates we're seeing now on corporate bonds, municipal bonds, uh, on lots of these things are so high, it's just unbelievable that that's fear of default. Um, for example, the, the University of Chicago just sold some municipal bonds. We, we get to sell municipal bonds, and we sold them at 6%, which, if you do the math, implies over 20 years of belief that there's a half a chance that we'll default on the bonds. Now, that's just un- inconceivable, a 50% probability of us defaulting on our bonds. You know, we got buildings, we got an endowment. You know, we're not going anywhere. Um, so that that's, that's a sign of a market where um, there's either people are just very afraid of small amounts of risk or, or the market isn't working well. So in the municipal bond case, what happened was most municipal bonds are held by funds. Most of the funds, in order to um, reassure their investors, require that the municipal bonds are insured, and they require that the insurance company have a AAA credit rating. So what happened was the insurance companies got downgraded from AAA to AA. Therefore, the municipal bond funds had to get rid of all their municipal bonds, dumping a bunch of municipal bonds on the market. Therefore, investors used to buying funds now are being relied upon to buy the individual bonds, which is a very difficult thing to do. For sure. No wonder if you go out and say, you know, if you stand in the street at 2 in the morning and say municipal bonds for sale, it's going to be very hard to get a good price. So that's an example. That's just one of 100 examples of a We have a credit market, a system for getting money from one place to another. And because of kind of a little quirky detail in the structure, that system broke down. And right now it's very hard until we rebuild that to get uh, credit flowing to municip- municipalities. Well, as a very proud graduate of the University of Chicago, I have to confess I'm, I'm slightly alarmed that it's going to be hard for the University of Chicago to float bonds. But I also would say, you know, really, that's really not that big a deal. Um, maybe you shouldn't be floating bonds anyway, and it's bizarre that you're floating a, a tax-free bond. But let's put that to the side. Yeah, that's another issue. The real side, which is the part I want to now focus on, the, the, the real economy, the fact that the municipal bond market isn't working well means that, okay, municipalities are going to struggle a little bit to to do new ventures and, and maybe even to cover some old ventures. Well, and rolling over debt's hard. That's what I mean. And this and that's an example. You know, companies are facing the same Well, that's problem. what I want to get to next, the, yeah. the so-called commercial paper market, which, again, is a phrase you hear a lot about. It was, quote, broken or frozen or – and that's a, a world where – and it's, again, important for – just a, a little bit of basic education here. It's hard to match receipts to outflow. It's hard for a business to, you know, you have to build stuff first and then sell it later. So you have costs up front and revenue comes later. And we businesses use capital markets, banks and other institutions to make that a viable thing, even though the timing is off. Now, the commercial paper market, I understand, is one way, maybe a very a key way and a, and a major way, that businesses solve that timing problem. What's happened in that market? And again, why? Why is that related to the problems we've been talking about? 
Yeah, the commercial paper market's very interesting. And in part, uh, let me go, you know, people are saying, oh, the banks, the banks, the banks. The, the whole point of the commercial paper market is this is a way that companies can smooth things without having to go to banks to get loans. So they'll do it exactly as you mentioned. If, the, uh, if, the, if you have to pay your workers on Friday, but the um, cash for the stuff you sold doesn't come in until next Wednesday, uh, commercial paper is one way of borrowing money from Friday until Wednesday. Just a short-term loan. It's a short-term unsecured loan. Now, was it broken or not is very interesting. Uh, in the fall, um, the commercial paper that banks were issuing um, froze. Uh, um, there's no such thing as froze, right? We're economists. There's supply, demand, and a price. Uh, but investors were worried that banks were going to go under and therefore demanded a price higher than the banks were willing to borrow at because banks knew they could always borrow from the Fed. So the banks stopped trying to borrow from the commercial paper market, and uh, you also saw the interest rates, uh, the small amount of borrowing that was happening at very high interest rates because investors are saying, I don't know who's next. But um, other parts of the, the, so the rest of the commercial paper market was very interesting. Um, Big AAA rated non-financial companies have had a field day because since people aren't lending money to banks, they still got the money to lend, and they ended up lending it in the commercial and paper market at very low interest rates to big um, non-financial companies. Um, so when a, a friend of mine works for Kraft Foods, and he said, oh, the commercial paper market's been great. We've been able to borrow immense amounts at low interest rates. So that part of the market is working so that fine. Part worked. Now, the other part, the interesting part that didn't work, the people with a little bit less credit rating, um, even if they're non-financial, faced very high interest rates. Uh, what's happened throughout the markets uh, this fall is people who have money to lend have become very averse to holding any risk. Yeah, understandable. So if you're a, um, a low-rated company, uh, it's just become very, very expensive. And if you're a person who wants to bar- uh, borrow money on a house and you don't have a job or a down payment, it's expensive or impossible. So it's really not that lending has stopped or the markets have stopped. They have made a distinction, and they've gotten very, very hard for anybody with, um, with you know, with less than good credit to borrow. So I want to come back to the to the question I raised in in and by the way, there are a lot more exotic stuff that that is in markets that are in much worse shape. These auction securities and the carry yeah. trade, and and so one argument would be. You know, if those things freeze up, that's eh, no big deal. If banks have trouble borrowing lending, it's no big deal. But as long as craft and a small manu- business, you know, a, 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 a medium-sized manufacturing concern, as long as they can keep borrowing money, then the financial sector is doing okay, and we shouldn't have a, a you know, a depression. And yet, we what we hear, and maybe it's just exaggerated, is that the entire financial system has been put into disarray through. Uh, a lack of trust, anxiety about these uh, taking on any more risk because people are so anxious. What, what's your take on that? Uh, I think there is a good case that there is disarray. It's not really in the banks. I, I had a fascinating conversation with a bank executive. I was sitting next to a dinner. I said, okay, you guys, the, the government just gave you all the equity you want. You can borrow all you want from the Fed at ridiculously low rates. Why aren't you lending more? And she looked at me like I was a sort of intellectually challenged two-year-old and said, that's not what we do. (laughs) We don't lend to hold, we lend to sell, and we can't sell loans anymore. Uh, And there really is, that's where, uh, you know, our students who want student loans, your credit cards, um, most debt may get the 
loan may get made by a bank, but it ends up packaged up and sold in one way or another. And these exotic-sounding um, credit markets, that really is where most credit in the U.S. flows through. And the, to the extent that it's not working right now, that's a real problem. Why is it a real problem? Here, here's why I ask. Um, I remember in an early part of the uh, post-TARP world, and we will come to TARP in more glory in a minute. Good. But in at one point, uh, when when Paulson was trying to figure out what to do with the seven hundred billion dollars, he was worried about consumer credit. He was worried about car loans, credit cards, um, home equity. Things that, as you point out, were not really being issued literally. They were literally being issued by banks often, but they were the banks were just intermediaries. They were middlemen. Yes. Uh, and I, I want to recommend our podcast with Mike Munger on middlemen. Uh, but those that that relationship was quote not working because they, as you point out, they couldn't be bundled up anymore, and so people were averse to offering those uh, those that credit. Why wouldn't the natural reaction be, well, that's okay. We got into this problem by borrowing too much. If people are now averse to borrowing and bundling, isn't that a good thing? Why was that so alarming to folks? Why would we want to encourage people to keep taking out credit cards and buying cars they might not be able to afford and taking equity out of their home that they really aren't going to have soon? Why isn't that okay that it's freezing up? Yeah, uh, well, freezing up, there's certainly every reason to expect that we would be doing less lending right now. So the fact that lending has gone down is not necessarily a sign of problems. It's, I think, I think we are moving to a much more savings-oriented economy and an economy that demands a lot more transparency of its financial system, and that's all a good and great thing. And we should be lending less, exactly as you said. You know, we got into this mess by too much borrowing. We should see. It's a good thing to see loan standards tightened up a little. Prudence, prudence, prudence. <laughs> but so there is a. It's a. It's difficult to tease out. Let, let, me, let me make an analogy. Um, suppose suppose you notice that the gas sales are down. Now there's a couple reasons gas sales might be down. It might be we're in a recession and people don't want to drive so much anymore. So that would mean gas sales are down, and and that doesn't mean anything wrong is wrong with the oil industry, right? So we would expect loans to be down now anyway because we're in a recession and and people don't want to borrow so much anymore. Gas sales might be down also um, because uh, oil supplies uh, got tighter. Well, if there's just less oil around, then they're going to be selling less gas. There's not much to do about that. I think the worry is that um, suppose some of the refineries blew up. Um, then gas sales would be down uh, because you know, something is wrong. We, we have plenty of crude oil, and we're not able to turn it into gasoline. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, to some extent, what's going on in the credit markets, that the middlemen system is kind of blown up. There's plenty of crude oil. There's lots of people who want to save. They're saving in the form of treasury bills right now. Um, there's some good – there are – there are some good loans that should be made, um, but it's getting it's hard to turn oil into gasoline right now. Uh, and one sign you see is that even very creditworthy borrowers are having to pay interest rates very high above treasury bill rates. Um, now, that could just be that everybody's massively risk-averse, but it, it's hard to see why... Um, why why that should be quite so off the charts as it is. Yeah, well, to quote Warren Buffett, uh, 
or paraphrase him, I don't know how he actually said it, you know, when everyone is greedy, be fearful. When everyone is fearful, be greedy. You'd think there'd be a few more greedy people when everyone's fearful that would get that yeah. a little healthier. Well, right, so that's the question. So are people not buying, say, uh, corporate bonds right now? Corporate bonds are, are very high. Are, are they not buying corporate bonds uh, because they just say, well, I don't want to take the risk. Uh, 15% interest rate isn't enough to get me going now. Uh, or are they not buying corporate bonds because the way they're used to doing it through you know, a fund or something of the sort isn't, or a hedge fund or something isn't that chain of intermediaries isn't there. That's a great point. I think that's, uh, that's, that is the right And it's hard for me to tease out. I think some of both is going yeah, on. Yeah, some of both. But I do see hopeful signs. So I, there is this system of intermediaries, and I see that starting to rebuild quickly. Um, part of it is, is unfortunately, our our government has taken over. Um, yeah, lots of stuff is is getting is having a government guarantee slapped on it. And the minute you get a credit guarantee from the government, everything works fine again. But I also yeah. see um, hedge funds are being started, and they say, look, there's all these enormous opportunities in buying um, good mortgage-backed securities and buying good pools of student debt and buying good auto loan pools. Uh, we're going to go out and raise some money and, and start doing this. And so they're building that. They're building new refineries. And that's, that is the only way we're going to get out of this, so I'm, I'm delighted to see that. Well, the only way we're going to get out of this other than the government completely nationalizing the credit system for a generation, which I am in deep fear of. Yeah, we're close to that. We're on our way. Uh, we're on our way, uh, and that's, that's the big danger. When are we ever going to get out? Uh, when is the government going to get out and, and get these private markets rebuilt again? And they are finding it fun to be in, which is part of the problem. Of course, their incentives to get out are, are not as uh, not so not so great. But one more question, then we're going to turn to the repair mechanisms that we've been trying. Uh, what is the role, in your opinion, and this mystifies me again, it'll help our listeners and me understand it, what is the role of, of mark-to-market accounting? Explain, if you can, first what it is and why, what do you think of this call to, to get rid of it as a way to make institutions healthy again? Oh, boy. Big question. Well, as, as you can imagine, um, the, the call to get rid of it says if you don't first like explain what, news, first explain First explain what it is. Yes. So mark-to-market accounting is, in principle, uh, the idea um, – so you're a business, and um, you, you have some, some assets, some things that are worthwhile, and, and you have some loans that you have to pay back. So we need to figure out if you're uh, a healthy business, so we have to figure out what your assets, your buildings, your uh, all the things that you are going to make money on are, are worth. Um, mark-to-market accounting says, look, when there is a market price for something, we should write the value of your assets at its market price. Rather so, than say it's historical cost or, right? Or a made-up number. Yeah. Right. Um, now, that seems... Pretty sensible. Seems like a good idea. That's, <laughs> to you and we, me, exactly. We've been pleading for that for a long time. It seems like a, a big, huge innovation. Uh, yes, um, because a lot of stuff, the, the alternative is, well, we'll have some accountants go in and, and um, light some incense and wave some dead chickens over it and come up with a number. Um, so... Um, but you know what happens is the the market price of your assets may fall less than you think they're worth, uh, and then you have to tell the world, look, we don't, we're you know we're not doing so well anymore. Um, I would say that if you think it's not a nice, so suppose the mark to market value of a company falls falls, and you think it's not a good idea to close the company down based on that information, 
Well, the right thing to do is is not close the company down, as opposed to shooting the messenger and not look at the information, right? That the, and in fact, it, it, this mark-to-market thing, it's it's schizophrenic, because half of the time they tell us, oh, it's mark-to-market accounting that's causing all the problems, and the other half of the time they tell us the problem is the banks is they have all these assets on their books that we don't know how to value and are secretly worth a lot less than their accountants are telling us. Can't have it both well, ways. Well, your yeah. mind. You can't have it both ways. Either it's mark to market, and we know what these things are worth on the open market, and they're not worth anything, and we got to decide what to do about that. Or there's all these assets that are secretly being carried at book value that are worth a whole lot less, and and they would be worth less if mark to market. But we can't have both problems simultaneously. But isn't it true? And again, I'm not sure whether this is good or bad. But isn't it true that the the mark to market Again, it's you're marking them on your books at the market rate, which is why it's called mark to market. So the mark to market requirement, uh, if I've got, I'm a bank, and maybe we should use, um, uh, well, I won't use that. I'm I'm a I'm a bank, and I've got a bunch of I'm holding a bunch of these equity tranches that we talked about earlier. Yeah. We know that they're worth less than I paid for them because the default rate turned out to be higher than I anticipated. We're not quite sure how much they're worth. Uh, the market for these has totally dried up, uh, either because they are worthless or there's this a lot of anxiety about this willingness to resell them. And you could argue those two things are exactly the same. If there's a lot of anxiety, they are indeed worthless. And as a result, the bank has to write down its assets. It has to, for this quarter or this year, say they are much less than they were uh, previously. That in turn means they are not satisfying their uh, capital requirements uh, through the regulatory process, and they are forced then to sell off assets to make their balance sheet healthier, but those assets aren't worth very much, and this spiral occurs. What do you think of that argument? Um, well, that's, that's a nice story. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot wrong with it. So, so part one is, let's, on to the mark-to-market accounting. Um, if you think that's the problem, you don't have to change the books. You can change the rule about what you do with the piece of information. So if, if you think that you know the market is uh, sending a wrong signal, well, okay, listen to that signal and then change what you do. You don't necessarily have to close the bank down. Uh, you know, so you don't have to change the accounting in order to change the the rules about what a capital you have to hold. So you're saying no, I, I don't understand. So you're saying that well, let me let me back up a little bit. We have a bank that appears on paper to be um, in distress. The anti-mark-to-market people say, well, it's not really in distress. Uh, and this whole worry about its toxic assets, instead of trying to buy those assets off their books or uh, what we should do is just not allow them, not force them to mark-to-market, and then they would be, quote, healthier. That's the argument, right? Right. And, and what are you suggesting is the right response to that? You, you don't have to cook the books in order to decide, well, we're not going to close this bank down because of this fact. We could just change the capital requirements. Yeah. Let, let me make – let's try to make – this is all looks mysterious. Let me make the argument the, the argument that I think is – I think there's a point to this. I mean, all arguments there's a point to. Suppose you had lent me money, and uh, I was paying you back regularly $100 a month, um, as I had promised. This is the, in Eurobank. This is the situation we're in. Then the economy goes bad, and, and there's some worry about whether I'm going to get to keep my job. So if you had to try to sell this loan to someone else, this, uh, this expected, you would be getting a lower price for it. This expected flow of 100 is now maybe not 100. Right. 
but I'm still paying you my $100 a month. I haven't fallen behind. So in a cash flow sense, you, the bank, are, are not in any immediate trouble. As long Correct. as I keep paying you the $100 a month, you know, you've borrowed from somebody else, say $90 a month, you're going to be able to keep paying him $90 a month and making profits. Um, so, you know, what's just happened is the value of my loan on the open market has fallen. Why should we close you down based on this information? Perfect example. Great. Right. Now, um, that, so that, let's, let's take that example seriously. Uh, now, should we say, should we write a new set of books that says, oh, my loan is perfectly good because I'm still paying you? Yeah, that I, doesn't look like that a good make idea. Sense. I agree with you. We want the information that this bank is holding loans that are questionable. Uh, should we close you down today as a result? Well, there's a case that maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should look at all the information at hand, you know, notice that I'm still paying the money and say, well, we got, we got to do something about this, um, but we don't necessarily have to, have to close you down today. I think there's a good case for that. But I do think, um, you know, the regulatory case, what, so in, when that situation comes, um, you and your regulators should just sit down and say, you know, this guy, John, he, he might stop paying you, so we need to think about what are you, you know, the chance of you experiencing a problem in the future and not being able to pay off your depositors is big. You need to set aside a little more capital as a result. Now, you, did, you, you went on to say, with the thing everybody says, oh, so the banks have to deleverage and so forth. Banks can and do issue capital all the time. When banks, when banks write down the value of loans, they can sell new equity. And there's lots of stories that say, oh, they can't, they won't. But you look at the numbers, and um, banks do issue new equity. They get new investors uh, when, they, um, when they have experienced some losses. And banks can also fail. Um, it's not the we, we think of banks failing as some sort of it, it's it's um, fate uh, worse than death. If, it's, if it's one bank fails, it's it's unimaginable. We we've seen uh, we we've seen too much of um, uh, uh, Bedford Falls, New yeah. York, and the bank will fail. Yeah. When a modern bank fails, what happens is within a matter of days, the people, computers, uh, the business part that knows how to make loans is back in business with somebody else's name on it. Yeah. And I think the uh the Wamu experience was was really to me very uh it warmed my heart. This was the week of the tarp when when the president and the treasury secretary said, you know, the banks are about to fail and and everything will fall apart if they do. And later that very week Wamu failed. Washington Mutual Washington Bank was taken over by by J.P. Morgan and was back in business the next morning. Yeah, uh, depositors never didn't lose a cent. Um, you know, it, it, and in fact, when it opened up for business the next morning, there was more capital there. It was able to make loans better than before. So we shouldn't fear bank failure anywhere near as much as we seem to. Yeah. Um, the the investors in the bank fear it, and they call their congressman and yell and scream about how horrible the world will be if this bank goes under. But a, a modern failure means the operations keep going. All the parts that we, the economy and policy, worry about, they don't close down. And people who take bad risks should lose their money. Yeah, very the important lose their money, but they're not systemic. The, that's the claim right. No, that should systemic be, yeah. comes under this idea there'll be a big crater there the next morning. No, there won't be a crater there the next morning. Or that somehow there's a contagion of fear that now your bank might be next and that'll create a run. I think that's the, the, the slightly more defensible argument for why we should treat it as a unique crisis. 
Uh, yeah, but maybe investors should be looking a little harder at. at uh, I couldn't agree with you more. They should have been looking a little harder at these bank books all along. So well, let's turn to the TARP. Let's um, turn to the TARP. In in uh, last fall, uh, Congress gave a really remarkably uh, uh, unusual and I think depressing, but um, we'll see what happens. Seven hundred billion dollar in two steps: three hundred and fifty, and then a second three hundred and fifty to the Secretary of Treasury. When it was announced, it was urgently needed, quote, as the toxic asset relief program. I think the original, if I remember it, it's gone through at least two, if not three permutations. I think it was only troubled. Troubled. You're right. You're right. Yeah, you're right. Um, Troubled asset relief program. The original idea was that Secretary Paulson would buy up these unvalued, suddenly worth much less assets off the banks of book, uh, books of banks, and banks would suddenly have healthier balance sheets and everything would be hunky-dory again. Uh, that lasted about a week or two, if I remember. But the, when it was originally proposed, uh, you and, uh, and a, a group of other illustrious folks uh, opposed it, signed a, a letter opposing it. And what was your argument against it at the time, and how did it evolve in practice? Uh, how did the TARP evolve in practice? And what would have been better? What might have been better? Um, well, so the first um, – uh, boy, three quick – got to remind me if I don't get to answering all your questions. Yeah, that's all right. I can do three Go, at once. Just give us some wisdom, John. Don't worry about the, the order. The first uh, – the first question – so uh, the original TARP idea was actually even um, – uh, it, lunier. I'm trying to find a nice word for lunier than, than what you said. The pro- proposal wasn't just to buy up assets uh, from banks, um, because that wouldn't work. If, if the banks are suppose the banks are holding assets on their books that aren't worth much, so they're holding it on their books at sixty cents on the dollar, and they're really worth thirty. Well, if you buy those assets from the bank at thirty, you haven't done anyone a favor because now the banks have to mark those down to market, and boom, go out of business. Um, why, why is that? Because they, oh, the, the they other... have to recognize that these things are not worth 60, they're worth 30. So if you buy them at market prices, that doesn't help anything. But wouldn't they be off their books? Why would they have to mark them down? They wouldn't hold they them anymore. Sold them to you. Um, they were on their books at 60. Once they sell them to you oh, at 30, see, yeah. they don't, you, you see that this bank, there's nothing in this bank anymore. That's, well, there would be, but just not as much. Well, and not enough to cover the bank's debt. You, okay. you would, this would be the, the, the mother of all mark-to-markets that forced the banks to close down. And uh, if you're going to just buy them at 60, well, then that's a transparent subsidy of hundreds of billions of dollars to the bank shareholders and, and debt holders. You know, you're just buying stuff at, at obviously inflated prices. So the original idea... But, but we were told, of course, that even if we bought them at 60, since they could go back to a dollar, taxpayers might make money on it. Remember that original, wasn't that the original, one of the claims that was made? Yeah, that was one of the claims. Um, yeah, I got a bridge to sell you. Yeah. Okay. So go well, ahead. So the, the original TARP, the one that we objected to so much, um, the idea was that the government would buy not just from banks, they would buy mortgage-backed securities on the open market from anyone who wanted to sell them. So there's about 13 trillion of open of, of securities sitting out there on the market, and the idea was that buying up just a few hundred million, hundred billion of them, you would increase liquidity or some magic would happen, and the value of all of these things, not just the ones held by banks, 
uh, the ones held by good banks, bad banks, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, you know, everything, there were, the waters would rise. Yeah, the rationale there would be that the, the prices were artificially low, people had overreacted, and once there'd been, once this, this injection of demand went into the system, they would come back to a more sane level. That must have been the argument. That was the argument. Okay. Um, if it's I a bad argument. Economic language a little bit. The view was essentially that the demand curve was nearly vertical, so that just a little bit, re- removing a little bit of supply would, would uh, have increased the, the whole amount. Or a, a water analogy, if I, if, I, if I stir the lake a little bit, the level of the water will rise. That just transparently doesn't go with everything we know about financial markets. You can't make $13 trillion of stuff worth more by buying up a few hundred billion of it. Um, so what was – what would have been what, – oh, so the, what did it become? Well, then they did the give well, you money. The Treasury money. figured out that wasn't going to work. They, they figured out that you can't just buy a little bit – I can't go buy three strawberries and say liquidity has happened so the price of all strawberries goes up. They realized that wasn't going to work, uh, so th- so they gave up on that one. They they realized that buying stuff from particular troubled banks at inflated prices is just a transparent subsidy to those banks' shareholders and bondholders, and and uh, n- not a good idea. And that if they and that the easier or the more effective way to do it was to buy stock in those banks. So that's what they ended up doing. They ended up buying stock uh, in a bunch of banks to, quote, recapitalize them, unquote. But they didn't – I never understood that. I mean, it comes back to your dinner conversation, right? They bought the stock, They, which on paper is – the argument for it was that, well, cons, the taxpayer needs to get something in return, which I think is a fallacious argument, which we won't go into now. No, we won't. Um, Let's just worry about whether it works or not. Yeah, so coming back to your dinner conversation with the banker – uh, giving people money doesn't repair anything. Well, let's go. So you had said earlier, uh, here's the problem: the banks have lost money, so now they don't have uh, they they don't have as much capital as they used to have. So a bank needs to have it, it, it has borrowed money and it also puts some capital in. So once it loses the capital loses value, so the banks need more capital. So you were saying they have to deleverage, and I was saying no, they could just. Uh, issue some more stock and get more capital. Well, the idea was this government stock in the bank would act as that capital, letting the banks then uh, borrow again and and lend freely. Because they'd be healthier, they'd have a better. They would be healthier, exactly. Ratio. They would be. They would be. This is like, just like um, suppose you're lending money to someone to buy a house. You want him to have a down payment. You want him to have some of his own skin in the game. Um, and so what had happened to the banks is, is well, it's just like lending money to someone to, to buy, you know, if you lend somebody to buy a house and they have a 20% down payment, the ho- value of the house goes down 19%. Now they only have 1% equity in the house. Uh, that's a much more dangerous, you, certainly they can't borrow any more money. Uh, that's a dangerous situation. They need to rebuild their equity in the house one way or another. So the the idea was the government would give the banks this stock, and then everything would be hunky dory again. And um, I, my view on this is well, we just ran an experiment on this view of banks don't have enough capital, and we discovered that it's not that banks desperately want to make loans, but sorry, we just don't have the capital and can't get it. 
Well, they got the capital, and all of a sudden we discovered, no, they, they don't want to make loans anymore because nobody wants to make loans anymore. Because they can't sell them, as you said. They can't buy They can't loan. sell them. Well, a combination of Too much risk. recession, there's less demand. Right. Uh, we can't sell them, and we've all discovered that making shaky loans is a bad idea. Correct. But we were not, it, it, the central problem was not, as, as claimed by all the banking types, that the banks had this, horrend, had this constraint of, of capital. If you will, so the story was uh, that why aren't we selling gas? Well, uh, the, the, there's, you can't get electricity to the pumps. So you have gas in the tanks, you got people lined up, but no electricity in the pumps. Well, if that were the situation, just you know, a little bit of electricity would get the whole gas station going again. That was the claim. Uh, the government gave them the electricity, and we discovered that there were other reasons they weren't selling gas. So what should we have done at that point? Um, what, what were people suggesting that was, uh, might have been more effective? And let me just preface it by saying that as I look at it, it's, uh, I've argued that the fundamental problem we have now, as opposed to six months ago or two years ago, the fundamental problem we have now, it's making it hard for the economy to function well, is that people are scared. There's a lack of confidence in the future. There's a lack of confidence in people's ability to pay back stuff. There's a lack of confidence that people are going to be buying stuff. So innovation is slowing. Entrepreneurship is slowing. Risk-taking is slowing. And when that happens, the thing doesn't go very well. And we don't have a model in economics of how to create confidence. So what should we have, what might we have done, or what might Paulson have done or Bernanke have done at that point that might have been better than this clearly failed attempt? Well, there, um, there's more than confidence. I mean, there is, there's supply and demand and the things that make them go together, which is perhaps where, if we're down to just instilling confidence, then uh, I think you and I don't have any professional expertise on it. We should consult psychiatrists or priests. Yep. Um, and when economists tell you you need to do X to instill confidence, I mean, the answer is just, who are you to say that? Right. I, that's uh, my problem right you now. Know, anyone. If that's the game, then, then, then anyone. Um, so give me a reason to be. <laughs> give me, well, that, I think one of the reasons people are scared is because you don't know what huge program is coming down the line. I agree with I that. Mean, what is the tax system going to look like a year from now? You'd be a fool to invest. Um, we've seen all sorts of... Uh, you know, companies, the car companies need you and me to lend them money and buy their stock. But what's going to happen there? Um, in, in one of the auto bailout loans, the government said, oh, yeah, and by the way, we're going to wipe away the rights of all the senior creditors. Huh, well, <laughs> that could happen any moment. Yeah. Um, I, I think what, and the other problem with what they did is that it, it might have gotten us through the months, but now we're still stuck with it. Once the government has bought stock in a bank, um, how can that bank ever do anything again. Um, Why is that a problem? Well, um, for example, now some of the banks are, are now having more troubles. Um, Citi, for example, got into more troubles. So the British banks have had to go back for a second round of government injections. I mean, when when a bank gets into trouble, what we want them to do is is find their own resources, uh, go get some new capital and so forth. But Or maybe not be able to and disappear. Or not be able to disappear or get closed down, yep. get closed down. And, and, you know, the bad banks eventually have to get closed down and merge with good banks. But with the government as a stockholder in there, nothing's going to happen. Is so that true? So you're, you're saying quick exit. But is that true? Are you're saying that if let's say, um, oh, I guess Bank of America's got a big. They took a big. Bank of America's an interesting story, right? So they get they get the first one of the first. They're one of the nine banks that's given a tarp injection, whether they want it or not, and yelled at and berated for not lending more. Then they're told that boy, we really need to get Merrill Lynch uh, bought by somebody. 
why don't you buy them? We'll work out the terms later. And now Bank of America says, actually, we think there's about $100 billion worth of bad stuff. So can we have $100 billion? And, of course, how's, how can we say as the government, no, we forced you to do it, but now you've got to live with it. So that money is going to be forthcoming, presumably. But why is it then that Bank of America holding that government money in the first round and the stock that the government got, why does that make it hard for Bank of America to, say, merge with another bank or buy another bank or do something different? Um, well, it, it makes it hard for Bank of America to borrow money or, or issue more equity. Uh, Why? Because, you know, you have the government as a major major player there, right? They don't um, own. They don't own a large proportion of the stock, though, do they? It's a small, um, they're a small player. Uh, they're a small small player, but well, you know that the if you're thinking about what's going to happen to Bank of America, and you're an investor in Bank of America, it's all about what the government's going to do with Bank of America. Yeah, agreed. It's not about the business operations anymore. Yeah, no, that's a big problem. But you have to, I, I think we overly fear bank failure. Um, there are parts of the banks that are important to keep going. Uh, you know, the brokerage accounts, the deposits. Um, we sort of decided those are operations that you don't expect people to be monitoring the health of the bank, and those should keep going. But a lot to the rest, there's, um, you know, the economic equivalent of bankruptcy is, is not terrible. The the Debt holders get wiped out. The shareholders get wiped out. That's the way it should we be. We get a new financial structure yeah. with a lot more equity in it, and the operations keep going. And that can happen very quickly. No, we've created this. It's a very interesting story. We've created in the modern world a risk-free haven called a savings account or a, a checking account. There, as you say, you're not supposed to worry. But if you invest in a bank as a holder of their bonds or as a holder of their stock – we expect you to keep an eye on it. That's what an investment is. Right. Now, you could argue we should keep an eye on the whole thing. That's another story. We'll leave that alone. But certainly, you don't want to live in a world where people who buy bonds and stocks don't have to worry about the risk because, of course, they shouldn't have to fail. That's a disaster. Yes. Now, that also, you know, once there are some guarantees in there, you, you have to um, make sure. So we don't, want, uh, we don't want the ATM machines across the country to close for a week. That's bad, right? Yep. Uh, but that bankruptcy doesn't have to involve that. So I think just a much quicker uh, failing of the institutions could could have worked just fine. We should have let them go. Uh, a lot of them should have been – well, we should have not necessarily thrown them into bankruptcy court, but the economic equivalent of letting them go, um, I, I think, would have – you know, you take your pain and then you would be rebuilding now as opposed to sitting with this constant problem that keeps getting worse. Now uh – we're almost we are out of time, but if you have a few more minutes uh, to talk about the, the current state of the macro economy, uh, we, yeah. we can chat for a minute. Um, you've been critical, as have lots of folks, of the idea that a enormous, modest, depending on one's perspective, a mere eight hundred something, dollars. yeah, let's call it a trillion. Let, let's suppose we're considering spending a trillion dollars on a wide array of stuff. Uh, you're skeptical of the Keynesian model that that will stimulate the economy. That's right. Uh, why? Well, it depends uh, how it depends all on on the implicit how we're going to pay it back. So one one kind of stimulus will certainly work, which is if we print up a trillion dollars of money and drop it from helicopters. Um, we know what that'll do. You'll you'll get a little boost in output for a while, not not tremendously. We we still have some structural problems, um, and then you'll get an, an inflation of Latin American proportions. Um, the the question now, I hope that's not what they're doing. 
Um, well, if we're going we'll to borrow it, but... <laughs> money that we intend to pay back and spend it, um, I don't. It's much less clear to me, and and it's much. There's nothing in the last 50 years of economics that says this is going to work. Um, work in the sense of, is this going to uh, help? Our, you know, we have a problem in the credit markets. Um, if, if the refineries were busted, paying people to drive around is not going to bring back gas sales, right? Right. So uh, if we know where the problem is, let's fix the problem, not stimulate demand, even if you could. And as a matter of modern economics, there's no reason to say this is going to stimulate demand in the first place. Well, Gary Becker has written a, uh, wrote in on his blog with Posner that he's, he's puzzled by this resurgence of uh, Keynesianism, that people are suddenly uh, susceptible to the idea that government spending stimulates the economy when, as you say, the last at least 30 years or so of macroeconomics has been mainly a rejection of that. But you yeah. could argue you could argue that, you know, they didn't really understand it. Macro is, you know, an amorphous area. Data is hard to read. Maybe this is the best thing we can do. Well, but it's it's not just uh, it's not just that it is uh, what we've done in macro have understood why those ideas are completely wrong. And the central reason why they're completely wrong is cuz people when they're deciding what to do today, they think about the future. Um, as you think about the future, when when you decide y- your thing of confidence was entirely modern and entirely un-Keynesian, uh, you, you're saying people in their spending today are thinking about what's going to happen in the future, not just how you know what's demand today and that sort of thing. But the Keynesian would say, as as Steve Fazari, a, a self-described radical Keynesian, said here a couple weeks back, he said, "No, that's exactly the Keynesian view. See, the Keynesian view is." Animal spirits affect decisions. There's such a thing as mass psychology. People are anxious about the future. They're holding back their spending, and that's why the government needs to step in and and make up the gap. Um, let, let me give, so there's a question when economists are providing professional. There's a question of when we're providing professional scientific advice and when we're just providing personal opinions. So if I'm starting to at, worry that they're the same thing. But, well, I'm, but, yeah, I'm trying so, to make that distinction. Yeah, good so luck. Let's look at the economics profession for the last 50 years, fiscal stimulus has vanished. It's not in any of the professional journals. It's not taught anywhere in any graduate program. Uh, Just this proposition that this is what we need to do vanished about 1960. Uh, It wasn't even, uh, I took a Keynesian undergraduate course from Bob Solo, and it said right there, fiscal stimulus isn't going to work. We've learned our lesson on that one. So if we're going back to it, it's sort of like saying, um, well, let's, uh, you know, we got all this modern medicine in the journals, but back well, to let's just try bleeding them and yeah. putting some leeches on anyway. Well, leeches are having a bit of a comeback, actually. But, yeah, leeches but, are having, you know, we, did we really know that leeches and poultices <laughs> weren't going to work? You know, we we got to do something because the patient's in trouble. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate again. You know, okay, so in the 70s, I, I, I think it's interesting you picked this 1960. I would have said starting post-1962 – with the publication of the Monetary History of the United States, monetarism started to have a serious comeback versus Keynesianism. And then with the uh, business cycle models of Lucas, Prescott, Sargent, and others, which, as you say, started to take into account the fact that people look to the future, uh, those models started to say that you know there really wasn't a very good intellectual basis for the Keynesian arguments that we've been hearing. But you could argue... Well, those models were interesting and clever and competing with the Keynesians, but 
how much evidence do we have that, that they were right? How much evidence do we have that people look to the future? And the example I like to think of is if we don't collect any taxes this year, if we just said, okay, everybody gets a free ride, no taxes. I think a lot of people would say, well, gee, I get a big check back this year, but next year my taxes are going to be twice as much. That's pretty transparent. I think most people would, we don't know how much they would worry, but certainly some people would save a large amount of that money that they're getting in the rebate. There's no, I'm talking about a rebate here. Uh, they, they, wouldn't, um, they wouldn't go out and spend and buy the new car just because their taxes were zero this year. Yeah. But that's an extreme case. I think the Keynesian argument would be, well, you know, if I go spend all this money, do people really think about the fact we're going to borrow it in the future? We're borrowing now to pay for it. And do you think, uh, how do we know that's not true? I mean, I. Well, you're saying that you're counting on fooling people as the centerpiece of government policy. Correct. Uh, let, let's Isn't get, that you know, part of it? Um, <laughs> Isn't that their argument? Well, and you're counting on the government being smarter than everybody else about where things are going. We yeah. haven't had a very good track record with that lately, have we? No, no. But we haven't had a good track record with smart people looking to the future either, right? So you could argue that, yeah, we're kind of in no man's land. The reason I say this, we can close with this because I think it's a very... You know, it's a it's a big topic, and it's we don't have time to go into it. But I, in in last week's podcast, I raised the possibility that most of what economists believe is just their priors and their philosophical viewpoint, not their scientific hats that they're wearing. They're wearing just their ideological hats. In this current debate, there is not a single market oriented economist who has been in favor of large increases in government spending. And there's not been a single skeptic about markets who hasn't thought it's a great idea to spend a lot of money. So it makes you think that, you know, it's not much science there. It's mainly philosophy. What are your thoughts on that? No, I would disagree. Um, So, you know, uh, let me say, so for example, Greg Mankiw is, is, uh, you know, he's a Republican free marketer, but he's been, he's fairly Keynesian. I mean, he's against the stimulus, but he's he's fairly Keynesian in in outlook. Yeah, but he's against the stimulus. Um, yeah, because he actually looked at the evidence well, that's, <laughs> rather that's, than retreating to old beliefs. And the bottom line problem with the stimulus, we, we don't have to get airy-fairy about Keynesian and, and the rest. Um, problem is, where's the money going to come from? I mean, the number one thing about an economist is just to ask, okay, you've got this great plan, you're going to spend money and create jobs and whatever you're going to do. Where is the money going to come from? Well, it has to be borrowed, okay? The guy who you borrowed it from, what was he going to do with it instead? Aha, now we're stuck, because he was obviously going to do with it something instead, and whatever demand you just created is demand that he isn't going to be able to do, and now we're done. Keynes just ignored that fact. But isn't he just sitting? It's remarkable, all the crazy things he said. I mean, he didn't even think, he thought investment was a bad idea. Um, You know, we don't need, the idea that investment creates capital stock, which is crucial to growth, that's not in Keynes. We missed that. Um, So so he thought, you know, you want to consume it today, and who cares about investment? Well, we kind of learned differently about that part. But you said this person who's borrowing, who's lending the money to the government to finance uh, all this wonderful spending on Amtrak and food stamps and unemployment insurance, the, the wide array of stuff that's being talked about. Uh, that person would have done something with the money, but isn't that person just sitting on the money right now? Well, okay. To, um, by the way, I'll, I'll advertise to your readers. So I've got a written answer to all of these yeah, questions. Yeah, and we'll put it up on the web. We'll put it up on the web. What would happen if that person were sitting on the money? You know, if you, if you want to go read the – because we'll get into money demand and velocity very quickly if, if – 
if we go that place. I do want to say about your government spending uh, programs, though. The question is not, I mean, some government spending is good. So if the government wants to build roads and roads are a good idea and we, and in the 50% of GDP they take from us, they haven't yet built all the good roads, that's a fine idea. My, my quarrel is just with the idea of calling this stimulus that it's going to raise the overall level of the economy. No, it's going to take money from me that I might have done something else with it and built a road. And if you think that building a road is more important than I, what I would have done with it, you know, then that's standard policy. It's a good idea. Um, so there's really the, there's, there's a macroeconomic quarrel. Will this help the economy overall or just move money from whatever I was going to do with it to whatever the government's going to do with it? But, you know, this, that doesn't necessarily mean that what the government was going to do with it's a bad idea. No, no. My, uh, you know, my basic take on this is that what this is a debate is really about is whether we should be more like Europe or less like Europe. If you think we should be more like Europe, that public activity should be taking a bigger chunk of GDP, then let's spend more money. And if you're like me or you, and you think we ought to be less like Europe, you think that's not such a good idea. Yeah, though I would caution you on that one because, you know, when we go to Europe, it's really pretty and, and you know, it's fun to walk around and the cappuccinos are good but horrendously overpriced and the food's nice. You know, oh, so what's so terrible with Europe? Yeah, you got to drive around the, the suburbs around the big city and some of the countryside and kind of add up the numbers to see the trouble with Europe. No, I think Europe's on the edge of a precipice, actually. <laughs> they, they're on the edge of a low-growth precipice, but the, the problem with Europe is, is not so visible to the American tourist. It's a, you know, talk to friends. My, my friends in Europe live in very small apartments a long way from downtown, yeah. uh, whereas I live in a really nice house close to my work, uh, and that's not just not individual. That's something you add up lots and lots of places. Now, they're having trouble. You know, I, I, you know, I totally agree with you. I think their social policy is uh, going to have a lot of trouble integrating the, each gen- the newest generation of workers into their system. They're not, they're not doing a very good job of that. Well, if there is a new generation of workers. Yeah. My guest today has been John Cochran, Myron Scholl's professor of finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. John, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you very much. This is a pleasure. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.